Would you take your Bible and open to Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 2. We have begun the Gospel of Mark and we're introduced to the prophecy of this Jesus Christ, followed by the identification of the Spirit of God descending, the voice of God the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son and you I'm well pleased, and then the authentication of this Jesus performing miracles and signs and wonders. Because of Christ's work, he is run out. Uh, There's so much attention, the mobs are so pressing in, he leaves the Capernaum area and he goes to take the gospel elsewhere. We begin chapter 2 today where we have five different times where Jesus is in conflict with the authority of the day. The question of this chapter in the next two chapters total is going to be, who has authority and what kind of authority? And this Jesus is coming on the scene with an authority that the religious leaders of the day aren't going to like. Let's jump right into the text today. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, where Jesus gathers, a crowd crowd gathers around him. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. The setting ties back to chapter 1, verse 21, Capernaum. We've talked about the so-called Jesus Triangle, where Jesus spends about 60% of his life on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was where he began in the synagogue in Mark's record, and then he leaves, whether we have weeks or even months. Now he's returned in chapter 2, verse 1. He's come home. Matthew chapter 9 calls this his home, his own city. Mark calls it he was home. You might speak of, I'm home in Tennessee, I'm home in Alabama, my home is Texas. And so the idea is he's back home uh, in the center of where he based his ministry. He's speaking the word to them. Uh, Notice the phrase, he's speaking the word to them. Logos is the Greek term there, no surprise to us. Logos is more than just the word coming out of his mouth. Uh, Today there's kind of a trend, there's a trend among some churches where gospel-centric preaching is is sort of the axe that they grind. If you're not teaching the gospel every time, you're not preaching well. And while I applaud part of that interest and motivation, the the word and gospel is a much larger compass than simply teaching the gospel that Jesus lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift called eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But the gospel occurs, involves everything Jesus said or did. The words and works of the God-man are in its entirety the gospel. It's a, it's a bigger term than just narrowing it down. And that's why we have these phrases, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, preaching and teaching. He came here, uh, 128, that he would go other places. He didn't come to be simply a cure-all for illnesses. His parables his confrontations with the scribes and Pharisees. He is teaching everything everything he does. He's teaching. It's not just an oh-by-the-way record. We want to look at the words and works of Jesus Christ. Verse 38, for that is what I came for. That's why he came on the scene. Now, when we read these stories of Jesus, and I I know some of us have great love and know the stories well, and some maybe are new to the stories, but I want to give you a perspective, if if you can stay with me for just a moment. When Jesus came on the scene, whether it's here, or whether it's with a scribe and Pharisee conflict, or whether it's with a disciple, or a one-on-one person in John's record, I think there was an otherworldly experience going on for that person, because they're talking to the God-man. 
This isn't just a conversation with yet another rabbi or religious leader of the day. Because he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, I would submit to you that these were otherworldly experiences for these people that they never forgot. We speak of people that have a charismatic personality who walk into a room and can fill up a room. Uh, some of us, probably every family has one person in their family who's sort of that person. They just sort of fill up the family. Uh, we have a daughter like that. She just fills up the family, her personality. She got married recently, and her husband has one of these personalities. It's delightful to watch because everybody knows him. Uh, I am now uh, his father-in-law. I'm not me anymore. Oh, you're so-and-so's father-in-law. And it's amazing. He can just walk in, and everybody loves him, and he has a persona that fills up a room, and everybody that gets to know him loves him to death. Let's multiply that times a factor of 1,000. And we're just getting a notion of who this Jesus is and what it would be like to be in his presence. So when he comes into a room, there are going to be a binary situation here. You're going to want to worship him or kill him. There's no, there's no indifference toward this Jesus. From the moment he's born, when Herod is king, he wants to kill him, and others are trying to find him to worship him. And that goes all the way to the cross. Those who want to worship him and those who are killing him. And when he comes back the next time, they're going to want to worship him or kill him. There's no gray. There's no apathy. Apathy and indifference toward Jesus is implicitly wanting to kill him. You either worship him or you kill him. That's the only options you're given. And we see it begin in this first conflict that he has with these scribes. A lesson in my mind when I say all that is, you and I have this book called The Word of God. And when you read it, um, does it amaze you? Are you compelled to read it? When you read the old, old stories that you know pretty well, do you kind of rush by them? Maybe a better question today is, do you know some of the key old, old stories? I don't mean to use shame or guilt. I hate both those in my own life as well as dispensing them out. But I want to ask you the simple question, um, are you indifferent to the Word of God? If we love this Savior of ours, the way we know him is God's word, empowered by God's spirit, alongside God's people. There are no shortcuts. There are no substitutes. There are no alternative ways. As we'll see in the story, reasoning by yourself is a bad way to learn who God is. You need God's word, empowered by God's spirit and God's people, and you cannot do it in a vacuum, and you cannot do it listening to one sermon once or twice a month coming to fellowship. You need to be in the Word. I long for you to be in the Word. I long for you to want to be in the Word. I long for you to ask Lloyd or Rob or me or anybody who teaches the Bible questions that we haven't answered. We don't know all the answers by far, but I long to know that you're loving spending time in His Word. This is the very Word of God. This is the person and work of Jesus Christ revealed to us. And this is a wonderful way to utilize it, but it's not as, I don't know what the words are, it's not as tactile and integrated to me as this. I love this stuff. 
I love it. Use it every day. But there's no substitute for this and a couple of pens and pencils. Are you in the Word? Do you really think you can live this life more effectively by not being in the Word? I'm not trying to shame you, not trying to guilt you, not trying to make you feel bad. I'm asking a question. Does it amaze you anymore? And if not, here's a novel idea. Tomorrow morning when you get up, set the alarm a half hour early, or if you're really brave and gutsy, an hour early, and say, when you get out of bed, Lord, I don't have the motivation, the inclination, or the alertness, but will you help me? And then learn to drink coffee black. <laughs> and sit yourself down and do it every day for three weeks straight. You'll never waste time in the Word. You'll never waste time with your Savior. And I would hope that if you would do that, you would find some amazing insights. Are you in His Word? These people are filling a house completely outside the doorway, jam-packed because the guy came home. Well, we meet these persistent friends who bring along a paralytic, verse 3. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him. Because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The crowd is uh, filling the doorway, envisioning a man on a pallet carried by four men. They're not going to be able to get through a crowd, much less into a room full of people. And so these guys are creative. Uh, first century architecture for homes most often was a flat roof. Luke chapter 5 mentions it was made of tiles. The phrases are interesting here. Uh, a paralytic simply means a disabled or a lame person. He can't walk or move on his own. He's on a pallet. He's being carried, so the story is clear enough there. They remove the roof, literally says in Greek, they unroofed the roof. And then it says they, they dug an opening, and then they lower the guy in. Now, you saw pictures in Vietnam of these thatched roofs. You imagine in a first century home, if it was tiled and thatched and had some type of fabric or cloth on it, that what's going to happen if a room full of people and there's four guys in a another fifth guy and a pallet on top and they're digging around what's going to happen in the room debris is going to start falling into the room this isn't simply a bird landing on a window or a deer walking across your backyard and everybody looks out at the deer or the bird now there's debris falling in the room and so people are moving away and jesus undoubtedly is looking up at the roof just like everybody else going what's going on the phrases are almost comical but we get an interesting insight into the storyline the phrase let down it's the same phrase used of letting down a net. Now we're in Capernaum. It's a seaport village. It's a fishing village. And if these guys are kind of MacGyver-esque, they can't get to the front door. Let's climb up on the roof. We can dig a hole in the roof. And as they're climbing on the roof, they go, hey, there's a bunch of fishing gear here. And we grab some ropes. So the story has a wonderful appeal to the first century. And they lower him down. And then Jesus says something that is completely irrelevant to the circumstance. Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Why would he say that? 
Why doesn't he make some other comment? Why doesn't Mark record something else? Now, first of all, the word sons is a very endearing term. It's an unusual term for Jesus to use here. It's almost like saying, my child. My child. Your sins are forgiven. We do have this issue, theologically, are sins tied to disease? Or are our diseases tied to our sin? And at the highest level, biblically, theologically, all illness is a result of sin. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. When Adam and the woman violated the one prohibition, in Adam's fall, we did all. Humpty Dumpty, when he fell off the wall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. The resources of humanity and power could not rebuild Adam. He's in a fallen context now. So technically, all of our, you know, the fact that our eyes go bad, the fact that we age, the fact that we get wrinkles, the fact that we get heart disease, sure, there are diet-related things to these that contribute, but the fact of the matter is, if you didn't know, we're all dying. So at the highest level, all of our illnesses are related to a sin condition. The more tricky question is, are specific illnesses related to a specific sin that I commit or that you commit? And the answer to that is yes. And there seems to be an indication here that this man may have sinned. We don't know, we're not told. But the way this story is told, your sins are forgiven, is the first thing he says, seems to suggest there was some sin that he needed forgiving. Our healing physically is a mere picture of our need for healing spiritually. Our spiritual condition is much more important than our physical condition. Well, the opposition is right at hand. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we're gonna, I'm going to show you three times the phrase reasoning in their hearts is going to occur. This is the first one. But they're reasoning in their hearts. And if you were to study that phrase in your gospel accounts, the, the short answer is it's never a good thing to reason in your own heart. You're going to make a bad decision when you reason in your own heart. Just take it on faith. You don't consult. Even though Nehemiah consulted with himself, you and I ain't Nehemiah. And in the New Testament, reasoning in your heart leads to bad conclusions. The result seems logical from their point of view. Only God can forgive sins. He's a man, therefore he's a blasphemer. That's their theological progression. Only God can forgive sins. He's just a man, so he's a blasphemer. Why would they call him a blasphemer? Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15. The scribes knew the law. Leviticus 24, 15. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. They knew the law. If you blasphemed, you're not God. You can't speak for God. If you speak for God, we take you out and stone you to death. And notice the Levitical law said, I don't care if he's, a res if he's a part of Israel or an alien among Israel. You kill him. Now, notice here, this is the first conflict we have in the Gospel of Mark. What are they going to crucify him over? 
blasphemy. You see, you either come to worship him or you come to kill him. That's the only alternatives you have as a human being. It's not just Jesus among other gods. It's not just he's another kind of thing to think about. I, I'm apathetic, I'm indifferent, I don't care, I don't really believe, doesn't make any big deal to me. No, that's killing him. You're either coming to worship him or you're coming to kill him. Well, Jesus responds to them, and notice in verse 8, immediately, Mark's favorite word, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Just, just pointed out the obvious. Verse 6, reasoning in their hearts, twice in verse 8, reasoning that way in themselves, reasoning about these things in your own hearts. Verse 9, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. So three times in Mark's short gospel, it's a truncated gospel, it moves very quickly, it leaves out big parts of Jesus' life, but he sees it uh, in the Spirit's movement of Mark's pen. I want you to write that down three times so people don't miss it. Reasoning in your heart is not a good thing. So these religious authorities of the day are saying he's a blasphemer. Now, the text is a bit cryptic here, and I don't want to say something the text doesn't say, but I would suggest that their reasoning in their hearts is a conversation that you're thinking about yourself, and maybe a couple of them are talking to each other, but this isn't a dialogue Jesus heard and called out. Notice what he says. The Spirit says to Jesus, Spirit, that they were reasoning, then he asked them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? He didn't say, why are you saying them? So three times Mark is careful to use that phrase, I think intentionally, so the reader, the hearer of the story would go, wait a minute, Jesus, we learn later, knows the hearts of all men. So in my sanctified imagination, they haven't even said any words, and Jesus calls them out. Why are you reasoning? Why are you thinking? in your hearts this way. You don't think I can forgive this guy's sins? What's the question? The question is one of authority. Who are you to say you can forgive somebody's sin? Only God can forgive sin. You're a man. You're a blasphemer. We kill blasphemers. That's where their theological, law-abiding mind would go. And Jesus senses it. And what's easier to say? Now this is a superficial comment. Can you say your sins are forgiven? Anybody could say that. Yes, implication, they might be a blasphemer. But who can say pick up your pallet and walk? What's he doing? He's showing them that he is the authority of God. He's showing them he's Messiah. And they don't want to drink it. The scribes and Pharisees, uh, the teaching modality, we call it, between rabbinics was a question and answer. You ask questions back and forth. We think of uh, lectures in grad school or college, and you take notes and take tests. That's not how the rabbinics were. The rabbinics was a case law. It was uh, interactive, where you, the, the professor would ask questions, and you were expected to answer those questions by citing case law, not just saying your opinion. Well, Christ confirms his own authority even to forgive sins, verse 10. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that 
they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Number one, in verse 10, this is the first time the phrase son of man occurs in the gospel of Mark. It will occur a total of 14 times. It first occurred in the Bible in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in a prophetic form. A study of the Son of Man in graduate school would take several courses. It is a voluminous topic. Uh, in Mark's, not to overwork it, but Mark, I believe, is just supposing the Son of Man versus the Son of God. Implication, he's born. He's a human being. He didn't come to be the Messiah he, simply in the way they would want. We've talked about this before. He didn't come just to dispense miracles and food and fix problems and bring in a revolution to get rid of the Roman occupation. He came to be a servant and to die for the people and to provide a way of salvation. He, did, he came to save, not to be a king in the way they were anticipating. The Son of Man is his most common self-reference. Think of the Gospel of John when he says, I am. We have seven I am's in the Gospel of John, each of them tied to a miracle and to an individual. I am the way, the truth, and light. I am the bread. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And every time he says, I am, in Greek, ego, ami, in Hebrew, it was Yahweh. And that's why they get so infuriated with him in the Gospel of John, because he's making himself out to be God when he says, I am. The Tetragrammaton, when Moses asked God, and when God tells him to go to Pharaoh, who shall I say sent me to him? You shall say Yahweh. We don't know how to pronounce it. We know the radicals. Yahweh. So Yahweh meant I am. Because he's eternally existent. He's God. Well, the rabbis don't read Yahweh when they read the Old Testament. They read the word Adonai or a different word. They gloss over it because you can't say the name I am. So when Jesus says, ego ami, in the Gospel of John, it infuriates the Jews. You're making yourself out to be God. In the Gospel of Mark, he calls himself the Son of Man. So each, each referent is important why Jesus discloses himself in that context. And he says, what, what's the issue here? Authority. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What has he just said? I'm God. And they would, it would take a while for them to put that together, and that's why they call him a blasphemer. John Stott said it in a very beautiful way. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not redeem unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not redeem men for God or made them sons of God. Fully God, fully man, attention will live with, but it is his self-disclosure in the Gospel of John. Well, the issue is authority, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. What kind of authority? Well, I can say your sins are forgiven, but to demonstrate to you that I have that authority, get up, pick up your pallet, and leave. Now, the verbs here are fun, and we miss it at first reading, but Jesus says, pick up your pallet, and Mark says he picked up the pallet. I don't think that's just a grammar point. I think it's a beautiful story. He came in on his pallet, but he leaves with a pallet. It's no longer his identity because the consequences of his infirmity are gone, and that pallet illustrated his infirmity. If you 
have a family member who's in a wheelchair or who's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic or disabled, if the consequence, if the, if the symptom is gone, it's no longer your wheelchair. It's a wheelchair. And that's precisely what happens in this miracle. Seeing is believing in this case. Everyone is glorifying God, saying we've never seen anything like this. It doesn't say the Pharisees believed. It doesn't even say everyone believed. It says they were amazed. What's the issue of the story? Authority. Does he have authority to cast out demons? Well, they've heard rumors of that. Does he have the authority to heal? Well, they've heard rumors and some have witnessed that personally. But now the scribes are seeing something that they're going to have trouble with. They're going to worship him or they're going to kill him. Because he presents an authority that's going to infringe upon their authority. The lesson or so what for each of us, uh, there are many, but I would just simply ask you, how do you respond to Christ's authority in your life? Are you amazed at it? Every time in the Gospel of Mark so far, amazement and authority are right next to each other. Because when he came on the scene, it was an otherworldly interaction with this guy. He wasn't like anybody else. He wasn't just another rabbi. He wasn't just another religious Jewish leader. He was the God-man. And every interaction with him was one where you would cover your mouth in awe or you want to kill him. Now the great part of his authority is that he removes the consequences of your sin and mine. We as um, human beings are prone to compare ourselves we can be haughty towards people who, are, uh, who live differently or have different opinions or different political views. We can think we're better, we're right. We can be envious and covetous and judgmental of people who have more than us. We're, it's human nature. And one way to level the theological playing field is to remember that we're all sinners. There's no uh, silver, uh, bronze, silver, and gold set of steps in front of the cross the ground at Calvary is level. It doesn't matter if we're wise, noble, or strong. It doesn't matter if you're a general or a high school dropout. It doesn't matter if you're a brilliant person in medicine or a person that lays bricks. God doesn't look at it that way. The ground at Calvary is level. And the amazing thing is he forgives all your sins and mine. That's some authority. And he forgives it by dying in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. In my place, on my behalf, instead of me. You know, there are no losers at the foot of the cross. And there are no winners anywhere else. And Christ comes on the scene to explain he has authority to forgive sins. And the religious leaders are going to have a hissy fit over that. To the point they want to kill him for it. Because you either worship him or you kill him. There's no neutral area. So have you taken stock of the sins that he's forgiven in your life? It's good to go back to that ditch, I think. Not to mire in it, not to sit there too long, but to remember, from what did he save you? You and I need to sit there for a while once in a while. I can't believe all the things I've done. How stupid. I can't go back to my junior high years for very long or I'd be miserable. But I go back long enough 
to say thank you for forgiving me for the stupid, ridiculous things I did. And the amazing part, he forgives today. And the more amazing part, he forgives what we haven't done yet. That's how effective his death was. All you've ever done, all you have done, and all you will ever do. His grace is sufficient. His sacrifice was final. It was complete. There's no sin you've done he can't forgive. You can choose to distance yourself from him, but his forgiveness, the effectiveness of it never stops. That's the kind of authority he has. Raising somebody from the dead almost seems passe compared to that. Anything you've ever done, what you're currently doing, and what you will do in the future, he forgives you and me simply by acknowledging that we're sinners, asking him for forgiveness, and realigning our lives to say, Lord, help me to not be as stupid today as I was yesterday. Help me not to be as thick-headed and selfish as I was this morning. Help me to to align under your authority. Because if he is the authority of your life, are you checking with him or are you reasoning something in your own heart? And that's where you and I get in trouble. That's why, as this morning, I start the day here. Because I need a recalibration and a kick in the head every morning. Or I go back to square one almost. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. That's how we follow an authority that's bigger than the world, that's bigger than popularity, that's bigger than a disease. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it's true. We want to live our days in service to you and not merely ourself. Thank you that you do hear our prayers about our horizontal dilemmas. But may we grow in faith to see less and less of that dilemma and more and more of how we respond to you and the authority of your word. You are the God-man. You're the most important person who has ever lived. May we serve the one true king. In Jesus' name, amen.